There was a Coupier ischemic heart disease study, and they found that moderate to high frequency of sauna use associated with much, much lower dementia and Alzheimer's, 65 to nearly 77% reduced incidence. Guidelines for the traditional sauna, two or three times a week minimum, 80 to 100 degrees Celsius, and 15 to 20 minutes. Hello, it's Andrew May, and welcome to another episode of the Performance Intelligence Podcast. This is under the science of category, where we drill deep into the science of a specific performance-related construct, and we pull it apart. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Tom Buckley to discuss the science of heat and heating. Now, if you were around thousands of years ago in the Roman and Greek bathhouses, you would have known a lot about the benefits of regular heat. This has become a lot trendier today, and it has morphed into a billion-dollar industry. Originally, though, these bathhouses were intended to purify and detoxify the body, and then they evolved into social meeting places for many important community and political decisions. The reason we brought this forward is I've been asked, even last week alone, I reckon three different conferences, three different parts where I opened up for questions. Can you tell me about sauna? Should I have sauna at the end of the day? What about weights? Do I do this on the end of a fast? So we're going to talk about all the science today. And Dr. Tom has been on numerous podcasts. If you haven't heard of Dr. Tom, a quick positioning on the Performance Intelligence Podcast. He is Associate Professor at Sydney University. He has been involved in over 100 peer-reviewed research papers. That means he's got some serious brain power. He's the Research Director at Strive Stronger. Co-author of the book Match Fit, along with myself, is a self-proclaimed human performance guinea pig. Dr. Tom, welcome to another podcast, this one specific to the science of heat and heating. Yeah, thanks, Andrew. I'm, I'm all heated up and ready for this one. And it's so exciting that people are interested in this topic. You know, people like to take quick pills, but here we have something that's uh, well beyond any pill you could make in a pharmaceutical store. So, yeah, I, I, and I'm sure you've driven some of that interest. I know I have because uh, uh, when you actually dig deep on this topic, it's fascinating, isn't it? We were originally going to talk a couple of months down the track, but we brought this forward. So welcome. I'm really looking forward to drilling deep into the science of heat and heat regulation with you today. Yeah, thanks, Andrew. I'm, I'm delighted to be here, and particularly on this topic, why has sauna, you know, why, because I get that too in my world as well, and even around the dinner table, and I, I blame I blame a Formula One driver, uh, Bottas, Valtteri Bottas, because uh, Drive to Survive had a very famous scene of him in Finland where he lives in his sauna, uh, almost naked, and I, I think I actually set the world alight to the fact that uh, sauna is a real thing and it's cool to do. Well, I was going to lead with a lot of these long-term or these longitudinal studies from Finland, but I didn't realize they were naked. So let's get it back on track. I think a rough <laughs> protocol for today. And, and I like doing this in our science of protocols because a lot of people listen to this. We want to make the podcast a bit like a book with an audio stamp. So for those of you wanting to go to a specific topic, Wizard will put this in the show notes. But number one, we'll talk about the origins of and the science of thermoregulation and heat. Two, different types of sauna and heat modalities. Three, benefits of using heat for Dr. Tom. I know you're big on this in the workshops we do, contraindications. It is not the same for everybody. Number five is heat and sauna protocols. And six, let's get into just high level and some of the experimentation we are trialing using pulsing, hot and cold cycling, Hormesi Superstack and anything else you've got up your sleeve. Now let's go with number one. I mentioned the Roman and Greek bathhouses. And then in Turkey, Hammam was a type of communal gender-specific bathhouse 
that was built inside these wonderful buildings. If you've been to Turkey, and which I have, I've been there. They're phenomenal. These were seen as significant social and spiritual places for gathering, and it became an integral part of socialization for men and women. So it's interesting, Tom, a lot of the history on heat and sauna had nothing to do with physiological benefits. I think sometimes we get stuck on this now. So talk to me about thermoregulation. What about POA? What about the hypothalamus? We'll get into that. So interesting, Dr. Tom, when we look at the history, I can't help but think a lot of what we've been talking about during COVID, <laughs> they were doing thousands of years ago in these saunas and bathhouses. Yeah, but think about it, Andrew. Uh, I mean, humans have always craved that social connection. And guess what people are craving again right now? social connection and guess what people are talking about uh, in a lot of circles so on and i think that you know we're they're not separate things we don't tend to say i'm off now andrew to regulate my physiology you know we tend to do things that bring us pleasure and some of that's physical and some of that's uh, uh, psychosocial as well and often brought together and when you dig into this it wasn't just the turkish bathhouses it just wasn't the roman bathhouses but in native america they had sweat lodges and they did vary a little bit dr tom between regions and language uh, they had music there were rituals but they all shared the common foundation of being a place to sweat I love that. Hey, let's go and sweat. <laughs> let's pray and let's connect spiritually. The sweat lodges, they're dome-shaped and they're built on a frame of lashed saplings and they're generally stuck together with clay, grass and rock. Sounds like a bit of a history lesson. And they retain heat thanks to blankets or animal skins. Now, what's really interesting is they were big enough to fit 10 or 15 people. They knew nothing about saunas or bathhouses. So if you look at the history around the world, there were different tribes connecting and heating their bodies and, and feeling all the benefits, the owls, the physical, the psychological owl, the spiritual owl. They didn't have any research back then. We've added research, right? And then the <laughs> modern Western sauna or the Finnish sauna. And I know you're big on this. You've ordered one, but you've researched this until the cows come home. Yeah, maybe over-researched it. But I think the bottom line, though, Andrew, is that we humans, you know, we're not cold-blooded. We're warm-blooders. And we we thrive on being feeling warm I mean, there, there is a threshold as to what's comfortable and what's not, and that's you know, part of this whole thermoregulation uh, mechanism we have. But we do, we are attracted to heat, and we do like the warmth, the sensations of heat. And it's not surprising that many, many countries. I mean, uh, you know, Finland is probably the country that's best known for the modern saunas, and um, that's quite a cold country for a majority of the year. So that seeking out heat as a pleasure also as a physiological adaptation, but especially as a social connection, it's probably not surprising that that's happened over many, many, many centuries in different tribes at different times. With the podcast that you and I do, with the teaching we do, with the books we write, there's a format or a pattern. We tend to first experiment it ourselves, mm. and then we'll talk about it and share, share commonalities. Then we'll research it and look at the science, and then we'll teach it. And, and this pattern is exactly what I followed in relation to heat. So my first experience around thermoregulation was studying it in sports science back a number of years ago, back in the mid-90s. Uh, then when I moved to Hobart and I was training in the mid-90s and early 2000s at the Tasmanian Institute of Sport under John Quinn and also Di Huxley, shout out to John and Di, our squad would regularly do some of those grueling middle distance sessions, Dr. Tom, that I do not miss. Seven one kilometre 
reps. Those 1Ks would try to get down around two minutes, 50 seconds. As I say, this is an out-of-body experience. I don't think it was me doing that with anywhere from 90 minutes to, sorry, 90 seconds to three minutes recovering. So it's a, it's a punishing session. We'd often do that at Risdenbrook Dam for anyone who knows Hobart. And then we'd go to the Dermot on the way home and we'd bathe our bodies in the freezing, icy, cold Hobart water. We're also doing some sauna back then with our spiritual mentor, a guy named Bruce Eaton, who I've spoken about before. I had no research behind it, but I knew that when we did the cold water baths, I'd, I'd feel better after. And then the heat was helping me sleep. But I sort of threw that away, got busy, came back to Sydney, started working in sporting teams, building businesses. I intermittently tried using heat, Dr. Tom, but it wasn't until my early 40s when I was going through a really challenging period in my own life when I implemented a combination of cutting back on sugar and alcohol, uh, lifting heavy weights, focused on sleep and recovery. And this was the genesis of writing the book Match Fit and also doing regular sauna because the apartment I was living at had a sauna and I was doing that two or three times a week. And one of the things I noticed is I felt better but I was waking up every morning with a kickstand. I don't know whether, I don't know whether you want to pick up on that, but I, I actually, I, I noticed that my body physiology changed. We might have to interpret, Thomas has looked at me, a kickstand, yeah, but my hormone profile started to work much, much better. And I have no doubt it was that combination of healthy living, cutting out sugar and heat. So that's when I got a real interest in this and started to dig a little bit deeper. I, I'm, I'm speechless after uh, your kickstand comment. Um <laughs> Look, I think, you know, for, we, we <laughs> yeah, look, as a, as a, as a motorcyclist, um, you know, I can talk about kickstands, but I don't think that's what you're talking about, Andrew. But look, I think for years, you know, if you think about your running sessions and you think about what you're doing, you're generating heat in the body, you are sweating, you know, your body is, you're exposing yourself to a degree of heat therapy just through exercising. And you've often heard me say that, you know, if, if you, if you, want to exercise without exercising consider using a sauna we'll get into that in a minute but i think i for years too you know coming from a running background and be going to the gym and i'd see all the ladies and men in the sauna and i used to just think what a whole load of waste of time you know spend more time in the pool spend more time in the weight spend more time in the treadmill um but actually when we dug deep into the science of this and and particularly i came to the science of this as a a scientist and a preventative cardiology researcher, and it just blew my brains away. I was like, hang on a minute, this is right under our nose here. And the uh, effects you get here from a health span, from a lifespan, from a management of pain, from a management of blood sugar, from a increase your cognitive function, reduce your risk of dementia, Alzheimer's, you know, I can go on and on and on forever. And I'm thinking, this is right under our nose. And humans have known this for centuries. And yet we run to the cupboard for pills as soon as we need them. Yeah, it really woke me up to the fact that actually, I don't think there is any one pill that can do what sauna can do to us physiologically. A bit of science, enough that people know the utility without them switching off and saying there's too many big words. So in the archive, I went back to thinking when I studied physiology and thermoregulation, and then Dr. Andrew Huberman in a podcast recently, I heard him talk about this as well, that we have two body temperatures. So we've got the shell and our core body temperature. And back from the ex-phys days, I remember the body and brain talk to each other. We say that in our programs, you're not a head on a stick and you're not no. just this cerebral being with a body that follows, but your body and brain are trying to balance the two temperatures. And when you understand that, that biology, well, that's where thermoregulation and, and the use of heating can really kick in. So I'll throw to you uh, to find the approach 
appropriate level of science to, to help our listeners understand the mechanism of heat and, and what happens with the body? Yeah, so if you think about your combustion engine, your car engine, you, you've got a, quite a high core temperature there, heat, you know, you're generating heat into core, and you're doing that by making energy. And human bodies are the same. You know, we're, we're producing energy. We have a high core temperature, somewhere around 37 degrees Celsius. And, and that temperature is higher generally than our peripheral temperature. So if you measure the temperature out on the skin and your arm or on your leg, it shows it's usually about two degrees lower than what it is at the core. And in the intensive care unit, yeah, we, we, we do that in uh, not such nice ways in that we measure temperature in the rectum as a reflection of the core temperature. And then we put a probe on the finger or toe to measure peripheral temperature. And if you think about your combustion engine, you know, you also have to manage that temperature and you manage that temperature in the combustion engine by circulating fluids around the peripherals and they get cooled down by a fan. And then the fluid comes back around the engine and maintains that constant core temperature. When we talk about thermoregulation in the human body, the human body has a really well-refined mechanism for keeping our temperature quite stable. And we can do that by changing the peripheral temperature, either by constricting and moving blood away from the peripherals to the core when we need to heat up the core, or by dilating it and when we become flushed and hot and sweaty when we're actually trying to release temperature from the core. So that's probably not your guidance medical physiology textbook explanation, but I hope listeners appreciate that the human body has a lot of similarities in how we manage to control temperature. And when we look at sauna, you know, we have to talk about how we're heating from the outside in or the inside out. And if you can think about the, the combustion engine, we, we should think about the human body in the same way. Proud of you, Dr. Tom. When we met 18 or 19 years ago, there's no way you would have been able to dance between a heavy, detailed scientific journal and, and one that's got some science, but also has relevance for people who don't have a science background. Look at you go. You must have been practicing regular heat and cold therapy to increase your brain capacity. No, actually, I have my very first very first job after school before I started uni was as a, a training mechanic in the garage. So I, I always come back to the engine. And of course, you know, I love tinkering with my motorbikes. But I think sometimes we overcomplicate it with physiology. The human body, but the more and more and more you learn it, and the more and more you learn about the driving principles of how blood flows, how potassium sodium moves around and that, there's actually a logic to it. And how... I mean, how the body evolved to this stage to be able to do it just always blows me away, just the complexity of it. But there are logical principles to it. And when we think about when we're cold, um, you know, we start shivering, we start creating heat, creating energy, uh, you create creating movement to create heat. Um, and when we're too hot, um, we, we move that blood out to the peripherals and we try to cool it down with the ambient temperature. It's a logical, logical thing. And you find physiology actually is very, very logical, uh, almost common sense when you break it down. And with a lot of the high-end clients that we work with, Tom, what we're really doing is we're playing with heat modalities. So we're, we're getting their body to experience cold and a drop in temperature and then get the corresponding shift in physiology to adapt. And then with heat, we're increasing it and again, getting the corresponding physiology to adapt. And so you're getting these highs, whereas a lot of people are in this static linearity. And that's one of the problems we talk about in modern society. So if we go back to all those ancient tribes we were talking about, they had this natural rhythm or this syncopation and nature controlled that. There was winter 
and then you'd have summer. So you'd have the seasonal change. So your body used to well, thermoregulate naturally, right? But now we set it on a static temperature, internal res- temperature control. And when you stay in hotel rooms, it's the same. So our bodies get lazy and, and, and almost forget how to regulate, right? So what we do with a lot of our high-end clients is we take them out of their big homes and their fancy shoes, literally, and we put them in oceans and we put them in heat therapy areas and, and different environments to walk on the grass to get back to basics, which a number of those tribes did thousands of years ago. But in some way, I think we've evolved so much, we've lost the plot and we've lost this ability to connect and, and have that intelligence or that, that physical intelligence that we need. I, I, I totally agree with everything you've just said there, but I think find it fascinating that there's a, a very big movement in with humans. And maybe I'm imagining this, but I think people are craving out you know, what we call these hormetic challenges. You're, you're craving out uh, a little bit of stress, physical stress. People are, you know, whether it be exercise, whether it be heat therapy, I know you're really passionate about cold water therapy. And, and you know, we, we've seen that, haven't we? we? We did a workshop recently and the biggest cue of all the immersions that people could do was for the cold therapy. Um, so I think, I think we are quite aware that we do need to challenge our body, but, you know, psychologically, emotionally but especially physically to to really get the most out of it and i think heat therapy is is one now where there's this emerging body of literature uh, with very little downside and you need to talk about the downside very little downside and a lot of upside and we've got Dino Cladston from Bondi Rescue Fame. And Dino in his spare time hangs out with Wim Hof, who is seen as the godfather of cold water therapy and ice immersion. So Dino is doing a podcast soon. So we will very much talk or we'll go deep into cold water therapy. But yeah, that, that hormesis, it's that stress on the body. And it's enough stress, right, that then we bounce back. Too much stress will break or kill you. But we've lost that in this cocoon, this comfortable society where everything's drop and drag, press a button, and we want comfort but actually discomfort is good for us discomfort helps us grow discomfort helps us regenerate discomfort in the right amount of doses can help us with longevity yeah yeah and i but we also have to be balanced with this you know if you speak to our parents or grandparents they will tell you about hardship and discomfort but they'll tell you there was nothing glorious about it i think what we're talking about here is really the physiological challenges you know, that we can control. But the human body has evolved through those physiological challenges or hormetic challenges in the scientific world. That is how we have adapted. That is how we have grown. That is how we adapt as we grow up from as toddlers. But, you know, we the human body doesn't thrive in wrapped up in a cocoon. It doesn't thrive without these hormetic challenges. We could have spent hours on that. So I think that's a, a good background of the origins of sauna. Tribes have been doing it for thousands of years without the research. The research has now caught up and we know there's a whole lot of benefits and you'll dig into those deeper next. But let's talk about the different types of sauna and heat modalities. Mm-hmm. I can think of at least three I'd like to, to tease out with you. One is the traditional finish or the dry sauna. The second one is infrared. I don't know how many times, Dr. Tom, I am asked, should I get an infrared sauna? Should I get a dry sauna? What's the difference between the two? I always quote you, so let's hear from you. And then three, let's talk about other types of heat therapy, uh, like a hot bath or like exercising when you ab- when when you purposely increase heat with exercise, whether that's in a environment, a controlled environment that a lot of athletes do before they go and exercise in a humid environment, or you can exercise with more clothes on to increase the heat. So those three, dry sauna or finish, infrared, and then other forms of heat therapy. Sure. Look, I think 
the mass body of evidence related to heat therapy comes from dry solvents. So sort of a, that's where I think from my review of the literature, that's where the vast volume of literature comes from. There's an evolving body of literature from infrared. So when we talk about a dry sauna, importantly, we're not talking about a steam room, although there does seem to be some benefits from steam room, but I think the greatest benefits seem to come from a, a dry type sauna where humidity is kept usually not much more than 20%. So we're actually talking about heating the body without necessarily steaming the body. The infrared saunas, and uh, sorry, because those dry saunas can be generated in different technologies. You know, that there was those traditional wood burning saunas where you could get up to high temperatures, but of course you, you know, you've got to be really careful with that because you've got the, the risk of inhaling in a lot of toxins or a lot of a lot of smoke. So, you know, I don't ventilation incredibly important there, but I don't don't suggest that people go away and start a wood burning sauna. You have the electrical heated saunas, which are probably what we see in a lot of gyms now, where you just see infrared or the electrical heated sauna. And of course, what you see people doing in them, what do you see people doing in those saunas in the gyms? They walk straight in with a bottle of water and they pour it straight onto the heater, you know, trying to create a steam sauna. Um, and I'm sitting there going, well, yes, it creates some transient heat, but actually you're missing the point here. This is supposed to be a dry sauna. The infrared and in those dry saunas, we're talking about temperatures up to, you know, somewhere around 80 to 100 degrees centigrade. So we're not talking, we're not, not much more than that. And I, I'm often in a sauna and somebody's going, oh, it's not hot enough. We should be going to 120. You know, it, it's hot enough to elicit a response if you pay patience enough. 100, if you're there for 15 to 20 minutes, yeah. I think if you're anything above 100 degrees, you, you've got a pretty good sauna game. And it, it, you know, sauna is like any form of modality or stress. When you first start small doses, bounce back and recover. It's the yeah. basic progressive overload. And we'll talk about that building up to 15 to 20 minutes. But yeah, I agree. I mm -hmm. always tell everybody 80 to 100 degrees Celsius. That's yeah. your range. You don't need any hotter than that. I, I think people mix up Celsius with Fahrenheit and they think, oh, this should be up to 190 Fahrenheit and it's only going to 90 degrees. But actually, I think the mix missing the point here. It's the exposure to heat. It's the physiological adaptation response, and then later the adaptation to that heat that matters, rather than what it says on the little sensor. The infrared saunas, they, they do fascinate me. The technology now has become almost commonplace. They are, they, you know, they're, they're small enough to have them in the corner of your bedroom. There is a body of literature emerging. I think one of the, the questions I get asked all the time, really, you know, is what is infrared? And I, I you know, it's it's always complex to explain, but I, so I'm going to make it simple again. If you think about light rays, we only get have the ability to see a very narrow range of visible light. Yeah, and at one at one spectrum of that, there's red light that we start to see, and then beyond that, believe it or not, we move to what looks like a black light, which is actually infrared. So if we go to one extreme, we have gamma rays. Then we have which you know he's talking about your nuclear type. Um, uh, you know, uh, atoms, splitting atoms, nuclear. Then we move to X-ray. Yeah. And we were, we're aware that we don't want overexposure to X-ray. We know, we know how beneficial it is in medicine, but we also know that the risks of overexposure. Then we have ultraviolet. And if we think about ultraviolet, really, we're thinking about, you know, sun exposure. And we're also aware about overexposure to that and UV rays. Then we have the visible light that we can see, this narrow range. 
And then when we get to that, come out of that visible beyond red light, we move into infrared light. And then if you move beyond infrared light, you move to microwave and then radio waves. So if we, if we look at where the infrared is, it is just beyond visible light. And we're exposed to infrared light quite a bit. I mean, you know, when you walk up to those automatic doors, Andrew, and you have the infrared sensor, you know, we, so infrared is used in a lot of different ways. We're just not aware of it. And so when we talk about infrared, it can't pass through walls or other obstructions. That's what's really interesting to it. So it's very different to radio waves. Yeah, it's very different to, you know, people familiar with Bluetooth and Wi-Fi. It's very different to that. It's a very specific, and the waves on it, the waves get broader in infrared compared to ultraviolet light. But as, And the further up you go on the infrared, the broader they get, then the deeper that infrared can actually penetrate the body. So I, I hope I haven't lost people with that. But just to assure people that we're not talking about radiation from X-ray or gamma rays. We're not talking about UV exposure from ultraviolet light from the sun. We're talking about infrared, which doesn't have the same harmful effects as radiation or UV light, but actually appears to have a lot of beneficial health effects at that ultraviolet and then obviously the, the higher up you go on the infrared, the deeper penetration you can get. So a lot of the studies looking at, you know, recovery of musculoskeletal injuries that infrared they use will be quite broad to penetrate deep. Uh, whereas some of the more infrared saunas you get in a spa and that don't tend to be quite so broad. They tend to be somewhere in the medium range. It's good to explain that because a lot of people who did try sunbeds back in the 90s and 2000s, sometimes get confused around this and think, oh, is it infrared? Is that going to expose me to potentially damaging my skin and, and increasing the risk of cancer? So that definition of that showing where infrared sits compared to the harmful rays that people got from sunbeds is, is very helpful. People regularly ask me, they ask you, should I get a dry sauna? Should I get an infrared? We can quote loads of research. In fact, I think one of the most famous bits of research is about Finnish men who have three or four saunas and this is research that's gone over for 40 plus years we'll live eight to ten years longer but they've got that research from Finnish men whereas infrared saunas have only been around for a little bit of time do you think the research on infrared will look similar in 20 to 30 years do we just need to be patient and wait for the research to catch up it's a, it's a loaded question and I could argue both science yes and no I think there are some distinct differences here. The infrared doesn't heat up the air around us. The infrared penetrates the body, heats up the body, and then the body's response to that is to sweat. And one of the benefits of it is sweating. Uh, I think the the traditional or the Finnish sauna, of course, heats up the whole room, which is why you know people like to be in this hot room sharing the experience. It's hard to know what I've noticed in the literature, and we'll get into some of these studies in a minute, is that the infrared sauna literature, particularly in the health and medical research, it's very targeted to specific ailments. Yeah, it's very targeted to either musculoskeletal, um, some work in, in, in heart and heart failure. It's very targeted, very carefully studied. Whereas when you look at the sort of dry sauna, sort of Finnish style sauna, what you see is this observational data. And one of the criticisms of the observational data people say is, well, is that to do with the type of person who goes into that sauna, um, as opposed to the 
you know, is the type of person who goes in the sauna three times a week, are they health conscious? Is it because they're in the gym? And what is it about them that's actually resulting in the beneficial effects we see? Why I get so convinced about the traditional or the dry sauna is because there are a few things in there, and we'll get into the detail as much as you want. The first one is that the more times you're exposed, the greater the benefit. Yeah. And so if we look at most medicines, we see the same thing. You know, if a cardiologist puts a person on a beta blocker to drug to drop their heart rate and you put them on five milligrams, you see a drop of X beat, 10 milligrams, X beat, 20 milligrams, give too much. And of course, you can drop it too much. So you get this almost predictable benefit. And that's what you see with sauna that you don't see with a lot of other sort of in vogue health things that people do. The second thing is that the duration in the sauna within the session seems to have a linear effect with the benefits as well. You know, with, with studies showing that, you know, you can get a 7% reduction in cardiovascular events or cardiovascular risk in somebody who's exposed up to 11 minutes in a sauna, whereas you get almost a 65% reduction in somebody who's exposed to 20 minutes in their session. So whatever way you look at the exposure, either frequency of visits or duration in there, you seem to see a, a dose response effect. And that's why I think we haven't seen enough literature from the infrared sauna literature just yet. But most experts in this area would hypothesize that we will see that as soon as we have enough literature. Because at the end of the day, both methods create a heat response. And physiologically, the response is very, very similar. Well, I know when I read that paper that said the average Finnish male who has sauna three times a week lives for eight to 10 years longer, regardless of whether they're healthier or not. And I do need to disclose the reason why they talk about Finnish men is when this study started way back, ridiculous, but we didn't include women in these studies. It was just very male-oriented studies. So that's why the study is quoted with men, because it started with men and they've kept that going. But I, I heard that research myself, Tom, and I thought I'm going to absolutely up my sauna game. Now, for those people who are listening to this and go, yeah, it's all right for you guys or for other people who do have a sauna or a dry, sorry, for the, it's all right for those people who have a dry sauna or for those who are using infrared. I don't have either. I don't have access. So can you talk to me about the use of hot bath or the use of heat and exercise? Yeah, look, I think there is a, there's no doubt that there's evidence that there is benefit from exposing your body to heat therapy. You know, sauna is a, a really nice, sexy way of doing it. But you can also get that from a, a, a a prolonged hot bath because there's challenges because the longer you stay in the bath the temperature comes down and i don't know about you andrew but i'm constantly topping the bath up to try and keep it warm and constantly trying to get it hotter and hotter there's no doubt there's benefits to that there's not the same degree of benefits as what you get to actually having a dry sauna there's benefits to a steam room and there's also benefits, particularly if you're looking at it from uh, expanding your blood volume and you're looking for exercise uh, benefits that come from heat therapy in, in exercising with shell suits. Uh, if you know, if you know what I'm talking about, you know, where you're wearing a, a suit that promotes you sweating under. Actually, I saw a guy running up Powderworks Road here in Sydney with one yesterday in, in the stinking heat. And I, I, knew exactly, I knew exactly what he was doing. I remember it. Yeah, yes, Little Athletics, Don Parks, who was our coach. And Don was the local butcher. And here is an amateur runner. He was a really good sprinter and he kept going right through his – sorry, he was, a, he was a very good master's sprinter. He kept going through his master's years. And Parks, he used to get 
glad wrap and wrap it around his stomach. Remember that? People used to do that back in the, <laughs> yeah. the 80s. Uh, I don't think that's what we're really giving us a protocol, is it? Wrapping your body in glad wrap and exercising in the hot summer sun? Look, I, I'm not advocating that for anybody. I don't want anybody to have heat stroke and, and have a heart attack from overexposure. I mean, we, we sweat when we exercise for a reason. I think this is about replicating some some degree of heat adaptation, you know, particularly in how we adapt to heat, which I think we should talk about. But you don't, like anything, you don't want to go to extremes with this. And likewise, you definitely don't want to go to extremes with overexposure to heat therapy. Just going back to your question there on the infrared, the only area, I mean, there, you, you, you've got to be careful with infrared that you don't overexpose to infrared. You do as well with traditional sauna, but overexposure to infrared, there is that potential it may actually start to, you know, have an, have an issue with your eyes. And so I think, yeah, when people are creating an infrared sauna, I think you do need to do, have it, first of all, get good advice, get one that doesn't expose you to unnecessary electromagnetic fields in how they position the, the sauna generation, the, the light generator in the sauna, but the professional ones have that worked out. Where's the right place to sit, et cetera. And secondly, you do not want to be overexposing your eyes. And so I think for anybody who's prone to cataracts or a history of cataracts, I probably wouldn't be recommending infrared. For everybody else, there seems to be tremendous benefits to our skin, to our skin elasticity, to collagen, to how our, you know, musculoskeletal system functions, as well as cardiovascular and other benefits, as well as the detoxification from sweating. That's just a one caveat that that I'm really conscious of is that if you are prone to cataracts or you have a history of cataracts, you probably want to get advice about whether that infrared is the right sauna for you. Okay, so wrapping up around the different types of sauna, if you are prone to cataracts, we would advise, based on the research and evidence we've got, to stay away from infrared sauna. But it appears the research, while only new, shows a lot of similar benefits. Infrared is getting similar to what you will get if you run a dry sauna. But it, the research is out loud and clear. Decades of studies in a dry sauna, there's a multitude of benefits, and we'll go through those right now. But before we do, also just closing out on the bath, for those people that do have a hot bath, yes, you do get some of those physiological benefits by increasing your temperature and changing that thermoregulation. But after a hot bath, make sure you have a shower and do the same thing after a sauna and after infrared. Always make sure you have a shower and get the toxins off your body. Tom, that's a mistake a lot of people make is they go and do heat therapy, but then they keep all the toxins on the skin. So have a nice shower after that, wash all the toxins off, and then go on with your day. So let's go on with the benefits. When I asked you to do this, you said, OMG, I could spend hours, in fact, days, and you did, trawling the databases, which you love doing. And then we've stacked that to eight benefits of regular heat therapy. Number one, longer health span and lifespan. I put that up the top of the list you put together. I think if anyone wants motivation on why they should up their sauna game. If it's going to improve your quality of health and it's going to help you live longer, Dr. Tom, why would you not do that? Yeah, great, great question. I mean, I think sometimes we get so busy and then we stop and we think, uh, oh, you know, aging, universal, inevitable, what should I be doing? The biggest thing if you want to look at it, how to increase your lifespan you, is to first of all, think about what are the things that help your health span? What are the things that keep you healthier longer? And all, I mean, I talked about hundreds of research studies here, Andrew. They're, nearly all of them show a health benefit when it comes to, 
to sauna or heat therapy, particularly sauna. The mechanism for that is complex. One of them is this FOXO3 gene that seems to be activated from this um, frequent heat therapy. And the FOXO3 gene has been really strongly associated with longevity in many, many different mammals. But it's also linked with lower risk of a lot of age-related diseases, you know, fewer bone fractures, lower prevalence of heart disease, and even cancer. So I think this is one of the underlying mechanisms for here improving our health span, which automatically will improve our lifespan. You mentioned earlier one of the, the Finnish studies, the 2015 Finnish study. That study known as the KIHD, it's much easier to say KIHD than it is to say Kupia Ischemic Heart Disease Risk Factor Study, That's the study that really, really brought this to my attention, because what they were able to do there is look at lifetime users, because 99% of Finnish people actually get exposed to sauna at least once a week. So a massive advantage in that, because now we know we have a population exposed, and then we can look at the frequency of exposure. And that's the study we talked about earlier, where the greatest benefit is those who did it five to seven times a week. And the greatest benefit in those who actually did it for more than 19 minutes in each session. But we shouldn't just focus on heart because coming out of that studies as well, can, you know, the reduction in risk of dementia and Alzheimer's disease. And I, I know, Andrew, if you know about dementia is, is, is rapidly rising up here in Australia as one of the leading causes of premature death. And yet we have a therapy here that if you did it four to seven times a week in, in the Finnish studies, you had a 66% lower risk of developing de- dementia, 65% lower risk of developing Alzheimer's disease compared to those who only did it once a week. So we're not talking about the type of person here, we're talking about the exposure here. Yeah, and I, I, I go back to what you said before, the people who are having regular sauna, I would absolutely believe are exercising regularly, they've got good social connectivity, they might be outdoors, they're eating well as well, Uh, they're also eating well. So it's this multifactorial approach, but the research is just loud and clear. Those people that have a regular sauna practice, you are healthier, you live longer. I've got another study for you. And I think our researchers around thermoregulation and sauna need to get the titles a bit sexier. I can't imagine this being on the front of men's health, Dr. Tom. It's a 2018 study. That is the title. Sauna bathing is associated with reduced cardiovascular mortality and improves risk prediction in men and women, a prospective cohort study. Now, maybe you and your research buddies, that absolutely gets you going at night, but that doesn't do a lot for me. But what did do a lot for me (laughs) is when I dug into that research and spoke to you about that, reducing cardiovascular risk and mortality. That's a huge benefit of regular sauna. It, it's, it's massive. And um, of course, all scientists only write those research papers for us scientists to read it. Um, you know, so that's why we get these odd titles. Um, but it, it is massive. It's, but it goes beyond cardiovascular risk. For instance, if we go back to that Finnish study I talked about there, Lockenen and, and his group in 2017, they showed that people who in the kids study who were using sauna four to seven times a week had a 77% risk reduction in developing psychotic disorders. And that was even after adjusting adjusting for things like nutrition and energy intake, socioeconomic status, physical activity, even their baseline inflammatory markers and status. And so in other words, controlling for all the things that are associated with people having psychotic episodes there was still a 77% reduced risk. So it goes beyond cardiovascular. However, 
It doesn't surprise me because if we think about vascular disorders and vascular diseases, we tend to always think about the heart. But of course, Alzheimer's and a lot of the vascular disorders in the brain, you know, they all get expressed in neuro, uh, neurological disorders or cognitive dysfunction. But actually, they are diseases of the blood vessel in the brain as well. So it's just a different part of the body here benefiting from this heat exposure. Talk to me about detoxification. This is where I think is, you know, when I work with clients one-on-one, this is often the reason why I'm encouraging them or prescribing them sauna time when we're doing detox. I think one of the most important organs in the body that's abused, used and abused and often forgotten about until your doctor says, by the way, your liver function is terrible, is the liver. And we should be paying more attention to it. Detox, the sauna and heat therapy and sweating is a brilliant way to detox. Um, there was a, a study published in 2016 in Biomed Research International. And I thought it was really, really good research because what they actually showed there that through sweating through sauna, the body was actually eliminating a, a lot of the sort of pesticides that we, we take in regularly with food, water and air just living in this world. So that was one massive benefit. There was another study in the Journal of Environmental and Public Health um, Journal in 2012, and really importantly, it showed that sweating was one of the best ways to get rid of BPA. And you know BPA from the plastics that we ingest, I mean, we can measure that in the human body. We were so exposed to BPA. And I thought that's really important because BPA can have very negative effects on some people. It can actually sort of create this pro-estrogen type response in men in particular. So the pro-estrogen, that's when you see the guys with, with man boobs, or they look like they're starting to get that breast formation? Yeah, that's certainly one way of describing somebody who's got higher than normal estrogen levels in men. But a lot of that is because east, the BPA is having this estrogen-type mimicking effect in the body. And so I've had some clients where part of the whole reason I'm detoxing them is trying to get them to stop be less exposed to BPA, so we stop getting this estrogen effect, but also to try and get the BPA out through sweating. So I think they're really, really important because these studies continuously show that this sweating appears to be one of the best ways to detox. Now, a lot of liver detox protocols are very, very good at helping the body bring the toxins to the liver. Yeah, But actually, we've got to get them out of the body. And so anybody that I have on a liver detox program for whatever reason, whether we're trying to normalize their liver functions, we're trying to bring their cholesterol down, or we're trying to bring their anti-inflammation levels down, or we're trying to enhance overall well-being, I will always be prescribing two to three times sauna in that week for 15 to 20 minutes or until they're profusely sweating as part of that protocol. And we see this in our clients when they follow this protocol. After a couple of months, they come back, they get reassessed massive changes in liver function and, and it just changes in their well-being and demeanor. They, they spring back in rather than dragging their tired, weary, fatigued, battle-worn bodies across the floor into our offices. Uh, I want to also then pick up on improved physical fitness, the third point. Did we have it wrong when we were training? You were training for track and island. I was training here in Australia and we were doing flogging our bodies, doing the the appropriate, we thought, amount of activity to increase cardiovascular fitness. Should have we been including sauna back then? We should have. But we did we you know, we didn't have it wrong. And if you go back and you study the Sebco Vetti era, Steve Cram era, you know, they didn't have the science we have today. So it's just a cream rose to the top. However, 
we have a few things we can do now. One, we've got far more scientific evidence and we understand the importance of not just stress, but recovery as well. We also understand that certain stresses can break the musculoskeletal system down. And there's DNA analysis you can do to look at where your, your, your risk and what volume and what type of training you should be doing that I think all elite athletes are doing now that perhaps we weren't doing. I think what we could have done was enhance our training by using sauna. I mean, there, there's a, a, a plenty studies. There was a study in the Journal of Science of Medicine and Sport in 2017, and it looked at sauna use. It was done across three weeks, about 15 times over a three-week period. And then they exercised them and tested them for a 15-minute treadmill run. And believe it or not, after just that expo uh, sauna exposure, things like their plasma red blood cell volumes went up. And what they also found was if the red cell count goes up, then you can carry more oxygen. And those that were exposed to the sauna, their runtime to exhaustion increased by 32%. You know, and I think if you think about that, that's exercising in the sauna without the musculoskeletal strain. You're getting a red cell blood volume effect from that. You're also getting the pro heat protein adaptation that occurs, which you get during exercise. 32% increased run to exhaustion time. The only other thing I've seen that comes close to that is drinking beetroot. I, I don't know if you did that as a runner. We, we certainly did it for years. Drinking beet, beetroot juice, you get a very, very similar effect. But here's the sauna giving it in a far less transient, much more um, a consistent effect. Those people listening who love these shortcuts, please don't just drink beetroot juice, have a sauna and cut back <laughs> your cardiovascular. It's not either or, it's and. Uh, now let's get on to number four, alleviating pain. So there is an emerging body of literature showing that um, you know sauna can be really useful for alleviating pain. It's been tested in many different ways, looking at in blood markers, things like C-reactive protein, which is a, a really good sensitive inflammatory marker. And, and studies are showing reduced inflammatory markers, which, which doesn't surprise me because of that detoxification anti-inflammatory mechanism. The relaxation effect in the body has been studied in females with fibromyalgia, which is a, a real chronic condition characterized by pain and tenderness. And, and some of those studies have often mixed sauna therapy and water therapy as well. And they've shown tremendous increased quality of life, you know, but once again, it's getting the right dose of exposure here and mixing it with exercise. And infrared sauna the emerging body of research now showing infrared sauna for treatment of musculoskeletal type injuries to promote to, to as an anti-inflammatory mechanism and to promote healing. So an emerging area still in the early stages of research, but I think that's where we're going to see a lot more you know, strategic use of infrared for uh, injury recovery. I was going to use an obvious dad joke for number five and say I forgot what it was, but number five is <laughs> reducing memory loss. But I had my sauna today. Uh, I do at this time of recordings on a Tuesday. I try not to have meetings on a Tuesday. I will write of a morning. I'll do weights around lunchtime and I'll finish it with a sauna. It's that hormesis super stack. And I do find maybe it's just because I know the research and I want to convince myself, but I find with regular sauna when I do that, my memory seems to be sharper. Yeah, I'm, I'm with you on that. Um, I, I've certainly experienced the same thing um, where I just feel a lot sharper. There is research out there um, looking at the repeated, you know, the 
repeated exposure to sauna. There was a Coupe ischemic heart disease study we talked about earlier, and they found that moderate to high frequency of sauna use associated with much, much lower dementia and Alzheimer's. You know, we're talking about 65 to nearly 70% reduced incidence. So from a chronic memory loss or a dis- preventing a disease process, um, there's certainly really good observational evidence to that. There's also some emerging evidence. Jensen in 2016 reported some evidence looking at whole body hyperthermia, you know, which you would get from sauna, being quite beneficial to in helping with depression symptoms. So there certainly is a quality of life and uh, memory, enhanced memory, I guess prolonging our memory, because, you know, we tend to have very good memory. And then as we get older, our memory declines. And so it fits in with this health span, lifespan decrease, increase in cognitive function or hanging on to good cognitive function uh, is emerging body of evidence. And just kind of blood sugar regulation, what I've seen in myself and in clients when we do the sort of 14-day blood sugar, continuous blood sugar monitoring is that in the sauna itself, because it is similar to exercise in that your blood sugar often rises during exercise and almost consistently rises during sauna as well. And then, but the benefit isn't that you're reducing your blood sugar while you're exercising or while you're in the sauna, you're exposed to heat. It's that the benefit is that you have decreased insulin levels later. So you get the benefit after. So what we do see is that there are studies now showing that it does, you know, decrease fasting blood sugar. And of course, once again, that comes back up to the liver, you know, detoxifying the liver, then we the liver is not going to be pumping out blood sugar while you're asleep inappropriately. Uh, which is what actually leads to a lot of pre-diabetes in the first place. So the evidence is there. And also in people who do have suffer from ongoing diabetes, I think if you are going to incorporate sauna in there, do it with some degree of instruction, supervision by either your fitness trainer or your health practitioner around building up your tolerance and ensuring that if you're taking insulin and stuff that you don't may need to look at how that effect is having on your sugars after the sauna. But there's definitely for the person who doesn't have diabetes, the decreased insulin resistance effect that's been shown in a few studies would be highly beneficial. One of the female clients that we have a multi-pronged approach on coaching with, uh, generally when an executive or business owner or a high performer in any domain comes to see you and I, uh, we'll sit down, I'll generally sit down with them over a coffee or a tea to start with, talk about where are you, what would you like to improve, what are you struggling with, you'll then go deep, you'll get a full blood profile, look at DHEA, you look at hormone markers, look at any risk factors, uh, we'll get a 48-hour heart rate variability analysis, look at sympathetic and parasympathetic, so then you'll take the approach looking at medicine and a science, especially with precision medicine, and parallel to that, I'll start coaching. One of our clients, I don't think I told you this, is a female executive client who worked for a large Australian food and catering company. You know who I'm talking about? I don't have her permission to okay. share this, so I'll leave it high level. But she said to me after she upped her sauna game, she came in literally glowing. She looked amazing. She said, Andrew, I cannot believe the advantages sauna has had on my skin health. She said, all my friends have asked, have I had uh, you know, surgery? Have I had a skin pill? She said, no, no, honestly, she said, all I'm doing is having regular sauna. And she said, it's made such a difference to the elasticity of my skin. And do you know, is she doing infrared sauna or is she doing a traditional she, sauna? She was actually doing infrared yeah, yeah, because there is definitely evidence that infrared exposure has quite beneficial effects to the elasticity of our skin. 
so that evidence is emerging there in there so but I think also just regular sauna, the whole opening of the pores and the skin and detoxing and cleansing, you tend to get that sort of finer glowy skin. But infrared is renowned and the evidence is there that infrared does actually help with skin and, and um, that may actually be the factor there. Have you recovered after the introduction today? I threw that thing at you, didn't I, about the kickstand? You didn't know I was going to read that. <laughs> and for those people who saw on the video, you just went, oh, you were just in shock, which I don't see often. But improved hormone profile. Uh, I've read some studies that show human growth hormone or HGH can increase 16x using regular hot and cold therapy. So while I said that as a part joke, with the male clients that you and I work with, especially mid-40s and above, one of the levers that we really get them to lean in is around hormone and it is around sexual function. And if they are stressed and they're in inflammation and they're not looking after their bodies and brains, that becomes a real challenge for a number of men. So that whole focus on hormone profile to increase muscle mass and for your body parts to work the way they were meant to work, it's a huge thing, especially for people who don't have that functionality. Yeah, I think I think sauna can, plays a very important role here as part of that overall approach to optimizing your hormones. Op, you know, ensuring that your endocrine system is able to function optimally. Uh, the study you refer to there is a study that showed about sixteen-fold increase in transient levels of human growth hormone. In all honesty, we we don't actually know what that transient increase, that short-term increase, means for the long term. But anything that helps the body to stimulate and produce human growth hormone is going to have beneficial effects. And anything that decreases human growth hormone has very negative effects. So I think as part of that, looking at how sauna improves our health, that's one potential mechanism there. And certainly put that together with, you know, regular exercise and resistance training and a balanced diet, whatever that balanced diet is for that person. Um, then I start and optimizing sleep. And that's one of the things a lot of clients have said to me, Andrew, is that when they are liver detoxing and sauna is a very large part of that, they dream, have the best and the deepest dreams. And that just shows just how important it is detoxing and getting the, getting the liver into an optimal state to optimize your, your sleep. So while you and your research fellows around the world would never use the terminology enhanced kickstands in your research papers, <laughs> <laughs> I, I did want to bring more of the human, the real element to that, that you will see an increase in body function, especially for men who may be having those challenges. So if we summarize the benefits, you said there are eight. I've teased through what you've just said. I've, I've got nine. Number one is longer health span and lifespan. Number two is detoxification. Three is improved physical fitness. Uh, a lot of people are loving that. Gosh, I can improve my cardiovascular capacity just by sitting in a hot sauna. Yes. Four is alleviating pain and cutting back inflammation. We've seen a lot of that with our clients. Five is reduced memory loss, or the flip side is it could be memory enhancement. Six is improved blood sugar regulation. Seven, improved skin, especially in infrared. Eight is that improved hormone profile. I've bundled psychological well-being together because when you're talking about the decrease in risk of dementia, 
and Alzheimer's and some of the psychotic episodes. I think that's an area, it sounds like that's an area, Tom, that researchers need to do more on because yeah. really that stack is so much is physical. And as I said earlier, we regularly say you're not a head on a stick. It's brain, body, body, brain. So I've added number nine, improved psychological well-being. And you'd put in that socialization for a lot of the tribes. And even like I know at least once a week, I'll catch up with my mate Mario. We'll generally do weights and we'll sit in the sauna. And Sometimes for men to say, hey, let's sit down and look at each other, it feels weird. But when you're in a sauna side by side, it's like cycling. You can sit in there, you've got your 15, 20 minutes, and you can have a chat about stuff in life, good, bad, and indifferent. So I really think that psychological and social well-being is an area that they can add to that list. Yeah, absolutely. Dr. Tom, so far, everybody listening to this would be running, driving, jumping their way to get into a sauna, or at the very least, they're online, Googling dry saunas and infrared saunas. But there are a subgroup of people who should be very cautious or should who avoid sauna. I think it's really important we talk about the contraindications. Yeah, no, I'm pleased, I'm pleased you've asked for this because I think, you know, we, we don't want ever people to have adverse effects here when it could have been prevented. Obviously, if you're pregnant, if you're pregnant, then really do liaise with your midwife or your um, general practitioner or nurse practitioner or whoever you're working with to maintain, you know, through your pregnancy as to whether a sauna is okay for you at which time during your pregnancy. And I think I'll just leave it at that. Second group is people who have got pre-existing health conditions. Now, I, I always hate when people say, oh, you know, if you've got pre-existing health condition, you can't because there's evidence showing that in many health conditions, sauna is highly beneficial. Uh, but once again, if you're somebody who's prone to, uh, you know, if dehydration could make you prone to a low blood pressure, um, then you'd be at risk of having fainting. You know, if you've got an implanted medical device, I think you really do need to be talking to whoever your healthcare practitioner is around. Would it be okay for me to be exposed to sauna? And if so, what's the best way to do that? So I think that's really, really important. And the other one too, if you have some skin conditions such as psoriasis, then you might want to reconsider exposure to infrared sauna because that can exacerbate that. And I mentioned earlier, anybody who has cataracts or is prone to cataracts might want to seek advice as to whether infrared sauna is, is the right exposure of sauna for them. Now's the time where we talk about heat and sauna protocols. We have spoken about this, but we just want to frame it and give people a really clear guideline. I'm going to lead with the guidelines of the traditional dry sauna or the popular Finnish sauna, as most people know it. And this is the sauna game, Tom, that we've got a lot of our collective clients to do. And also with a lot of the group programs we're doing with Strive Stronger, we're often working on this one government group now is going to be working with 15,000 people next year. So we're giving these guidelines, obviously contraindications, but we've got loads of people out trialing this and so many people are coming back saying, I just feel so great. So the guidelines for the traditional sauna is two or three times a week minimum, 80 to 100 degrees Celsius and 15 to 20 minutes. So that's the protocol we say, the three things, two or three times a week, 80 to 100 degrees and 15 to 20 minutes minimum. Do you want to pick up on that and talk about any of the science or any of the, the experimentation you've done with that? Yeah, look, I think I think I, I can't disagree with that. I, I think some exposure is better than no exposure. I think if you can build it up to towards 20 minutes, um, it does depend on the temperature in the sauna. You know, if you're in a, a, a sauna that's hitting up to 100 degrees, then you might need to build up to uh, exposure 10 minutes, build up to 15 minutes and to make it to 20 minutes. If you're in a sauna that's much lower, it might take a lot longer. The guy that I give a lot of clients I work with is to try to stay in there 
until you're getting a little uncomfortable and you're sweating profusely. And that's probably the time to think about, have I been in there long enough from a detoxification perspective? I think going much above 20 minutes, you know, I, I know people at the gym who say, look, I'm out, oh, I did 40 minutes in the sauna, you know, and are dehydrated and they spend the rest of the day drinking coffee to catch up and soft drinks and stuff. You're kind of negating the benefits. So I think you just got to weigh up where is the therapeutic effect? Where is the pleasurable effect? And then I think around the 20 minutes is a good is a good guideline. If I can add, where's the realistic effect for those people that have jobs and want to look after themselves and have family or significant others? You don't have hours to invest in this. So that's why I like that 15 to 20 minutes. Uh, and also, yeah, build up your sauna game. When you first start, 10 minutes feels like a lot, especially if it is up around 90 or 100 degrees. So don't straight away go and sit for 20 minutes. Uh, it took yeah. me a couple of months to build up. But yeah, my, my gold therapy on sauna is 20 minutes, do it at the end of a weights workout and, and do that two or three times a week. Yeah, I, I that's really good advice, Andrew. I don't know if I told you when I started doing sauna, I, I used to almost faint after five minutes. And so I would do four minutes and then I'd go out. And, and then you put me on to... Were you holding your breath? No, just 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 wasn't that heat tolerant. Grew up in Ireland, Andrew. You know, just wasn't that heat tolerant. So, so I say on the holding your breath. I wasn't saying that being facetious, because I think a lot of people get in there, and we've had this with clients. Think, oh, I can't do more than five or six minutes because I feel a little bit giddy. Yeah. And the other thing that I've found, I haven't seen research on this, Tom. This is you. You often come at it through science and practice, and I'll come through practice first, then science. But I find a lot of people when they do this. It's one of the only forms where they switch off from technology. Yeah. 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 So I find the people that are always on, they're jacked up, you know, everything's drop and drag and they get in there. And for five or six minutes, sometimes there's almost a borderline anxiety because they're not connecting to the grid. So I always say that to, to our clients that come and say, oh, I felt really anxious. Well, were you anxious because you actually don't know how to relax? Or did you get giddy because you're actually had the heat and you didn't have the thermoregulation and your POA response is not kicking in. So I think it's really important we look at the habits and behaviours that also underpin the ways we're living, which is not really conducive to longevity and everything that you and I bang on about. Yeah, and, and for me personally, it might have been a combination, to be honest. I mean, I, I love 20, 25 minutes in there now just just thinking, you know, but it was it was a bit of training. and But you build up the resilience because – one of the things that you're doing, like one of the sort of molecular mechanisms behind this is, of course, you're getting this hormetic challenge, but you develop these heat shock proteins. Um, they become highly adapted in this. And they, these high, these heat shock proteins are absolute hallmark of, of the aging process, but they do need to adapt. You know, they're, they're the things that help muscles to not shrink as we get older. These are the things that keep our skin, elasticity, et cetera. So there is an adaptation to that. And you do have to build up. Someone like me, you know, was incredibly fit when I started doing this. And maybe, maybe it was a little dehydrated going in could be a factor. Maybe it was going in after hard exercises. So your body's already a bit dilated, already been sweating. It could be other factors, but actually, it, took me about six months to build it up. Even that conversation then, Dr. Tom, with you and I, we're researching this, we're coaching this, we would have collectively, we would have had literally thousands of people now who have tried heat exposure and thermoregulation techniques and cold exposure with all the programs we're doing. But it's learning and it's adapting. 
And I think that's really important to stress to people that, yeah, there's science, but then put it into practice. What works for you? I think we've covered the dry sauna protocol guidelines. Can you give us the guidelines for infrared sauna? When you're working with a client who's using infrared, what, what protocol do you give them? Yeah, um, most clients sort of sessions typically are between 15 and 30 minutes in duration. And the reason for that, why I use that protocol is because that's generally what's used in most of the research studies, you know, studies done chronic fatigue or decreasing soreness in the muscles or after strength training sessions, um, or even, you know, around blood pressure and stuff. All those studies use protocols between 15 and 30 minutes. Now, knowing the infrared not all infrared are equal and not all have the same wavelengths and some penetrate more than others. And the guideline I often say to, to clients is, uh, remember the infrared is heating the body, not the air. So wait until the body is starting to sweat and then try to, once you're sweating, try to stay in there between five and 10 minutes more. That for the average person is somewhere between 15 and 30 minutes exposure. Like a lot of things, you know, there, there's the science and the science evidence and what's been studied and what seems to be the best protocol. But I think one of the things I learned from you, and it's something I also do with the clients, is to, is to mix the heat therapy with cold therapy. Uh, I know when I first started using the sauna, I, I couldn't last more than five, six minutes without needing to go out. And so I, you, you put me onto this that, you know, when it gets to that point of uncomfortable and now it takes about 15, 20 minutes before I get there. Um, then I'll go out and have a cold shower and then I'll go back in for more exposure. And there is some evolving evidence there, but I think most clients, and Andrew, I know you do this religiously, talk about that and feel that additional benefit from that the sort of hormetic challenge of heat and cold in the same session. Yeah, this is the, the funky stuff that we talk about when you super stack all this. And there's at least three different topics I'd like to talk about more at a high level because we could do a different podcast on each one of these, Tom. Uh, we'll talk about the hot and cold switch. We'll talk about pulsing, especially uh, what we've done with some clients during COVID. And we'll talk about the hormesis super stack. So that hot and cold switch. Look, I've read the research about balance between hot and cold increasing human growth hormone 16x way after I started doing it. But back when I told you in my mid 40s going through that life funk, and I just started doing some sauna and felt better. But then I, I, I wasn't able to push on more than 10 minutes. So to start with, I just did that and I'd have a lukewarm shower. At the same time, I was reading about Wim Hof. So I thought I'd just throw in the cold shower. And I just found it was a great way to get my body to adapt. So to get that bounce or that balance, you and I teach this. You know, we need to upregulate and our whole life is geared on upregulating stress, work, your relationships, out socializing, clubbing, whatever people are doing, but then downregulating and, and, and changing the physiology, learning to relax or shocking the physiology. I think this was really the metamorphosis of a lot of that upregulation, downregulation. So the hot and cold switch for me started just a, an eight minute sauna and then I'd go into a 60 to 90 second cold shower. And in between walking out of the sauna to the shower and back, that's about a 10 minute rest. And I do that twice. Then I started doing that with a couple of mates and got a couple of clients doing it. They came back and said, oh, I feel amazing. What, what is happening? And then I dug into the research. So that was one of those activities, Tom, where it felt right. And look at, looking at the research we spoke about at the start, they've been doing this for thousands of years in Finland. They'd, they'd jump in a hot tub and then they'd dive in the ice. They'd carve out something in the ice. So uh, there must be reasons they've been doing it for thousands of years. So the hot and cold switch is just this 
balance between hot and cold. And I like that 10 minute protocol. So sauna for about eight minutes, cold shower when you first start, breathe. Otherwise you will squeal or scream. And then have your cold shower for up to 60 to 90 minutes. I also want to talk about pulsing which is a concept that you and I worked on and we still are working with a number of our high-end clients who are always used to throwing resources to fix a situation. And a number of these clients who had long COVID couldn't throw resources, money, time, trainers, therapists, medicine experts, and they had to try a totally different approach. So you really evolved our learning on this. So I'll throw this one to you. Yeah, the concept of pulsing here is about sort of you know, different exposures in a strategic way. And so, you know, trying to sweat the toxins out one day, focusing on on that almost exercise effect you get in the shower, but really to get the detoxification. And we saw this in quite a few of our clients have been working with who had these prolonged symptoms out of the acute phase of COVID and there's prolonged fatigue or brain fog. And so just trying to trying to help their bodies detoxify on one day we exposed to sauna. And then on the next day, we'll look at a more a less stressor on the body and a more regenerative, we use hyperbaric oxygen therapy on the next day. And we just pulsed between the two. And um, yeah, there, there's some theory underneath why you would do that. Once again, the, the literature and the evidence is kind of emerging around this, but we were doing this before there was any evidence just from our, our own knowledge of working with people and, and optimizing human performance and we've had some amazing results i mean we we haven't had controls to compare to to know would they have improved anyway so i always own that but the clients we've worked with rapidly rapidly improved from their long covid symptoms and there was there were some other things we were doing around supplementation and and very prescriptive activities but I think actually two hallmarks were very much using the sauna one day and then using hyperbaric oxygen on the next day. We will maintain confidentiality. So you and I have and still are working with a number of very high-profile corporate clients. Some of them run companies with thousands and thousands of staff. We had a couple of those clients who contacted us and were really worried not just about long COVID, but were worried about their memory, worried about continuing relationships and worried about occupying at that high-end cognitive capacity. And it's been phenomenal, the results we've seen. And we can't exactly put our finger on, is it the pulsing? Is it the supplementation? Is it actually slowing down and relaxing? Is it looking at HIV and heart rate? Is it, is it, is it? But through a combination of all that, one of them I caught up with last week, he I've never seen him have so much energy. Whereas six months ago, he was really worried about whether he could continue in his role. It's about optimizing physiology at the time, and a lot of a, a lot of you know, I mean, athletes do this, but so do corporate athletes and, and really highly successful people. To get used to trying more in, getting good results, throw more in, more time, more energy, you know, more sacrifice, and generally they get the response. And I think what kind of stunned a lot of people when they got COVID was that the more they threw in, the worse they got. And so a lot of a kind of concept of pulsing was actually measuring their sympathetic parasympathetic activity, measuring their blood work, making sure there were no ongoing pathologies going on, particularly from a heart perspective, you know, making sure there was no no endocarditis or myocarditis that could be giving those symptoms. And as soon as we had clearances from their cardiologists and the general practitioners that there was no underlying disease going on, then we knew that then 
what they really needed to do was sort of almost regenerate the body. And so we worked really hard to optimize their recovery while pulsed them through micro stresses to keep priming the body and detoxify the body. And uh, I've been stunned just how many people and even some of my colleagues, healthcare professionals who, you know, were really struggling that I use this protocol, you know, were just stunned at how quickly they recovered. Um, it's not here's the formula and away you go. It's a very individualized, tailored, because I think one of the things we learned with COVID is that individuals responded in different ways. The duration of recovery varied among people. And uh, and so we really just worked at optimizing physiology and had some amazing results. And uh, I, I think it's become a way of life for many once they recovered from the long COVID symptoms. They just saw that actually this is a way to optimize their well-being and to maintain this high-functioning stage without burning out. One of the constant threads that comes through our conversations is performance intelligence, which is that ability to regulate physical, psychological, and emotional state to then show up for what matters. We've seen that a lot through sauna. It is that intelligence to work out, okay, here's the science, but what works for you? And then that is the final part on the accelerators. For me, it's that hormesis super stack. So we've spoken about what hormesis is. In fasting, I like the 16-8 protocol, and there's as much functionality to that as there is research, because I find if I put my fork down at around 8 p.m. at night with four young kids, I tend to eat a bit later, Tom, getting the little ones to bed. But then a 16-hour fast for me means I miss brekkie, but I'd eat the next day around midday. And I started reading, listening, other people podcasting, and I put a wait session in at about the 15-hour mark on the fast, and I'll do 40, 40, 40 to 45 minutes, pretty high intensity. I'll do some big core lifts, and I'll try and get that metabolic shunt as well, or the cardiovascular shunt. So I'll do squats, I'll throw in some bench, I might do leg press or lunges, I'll throw in some deadlift or back as well, and then some mirror muscles. You've always got to do those at the end. And then I'll sit in the sauna now for 20 minutes. And I ran this protocol by Paul Taylor, who I've done a previous podcast with on fasting. Paul's a neuroscientist and, and also a nutritionist. I was doing a little bit of cold at the end of that. Paul said from a hormonal level, take the cold out of that. So where I've sharpened that hormesis super stack is I'll do a 16-hour fast. Towards the end of that fast, the last hour, I'll do a heavyweight session, and then I'll throw a 20-minute sauna at the end of it. And then I won't do the cold because Paul is saying that you'll get that increase in growth hormone and the metabolic benefits by having the heat and not bringing the cold. Now, I do do a little bit of a cold shower just so I can go back to work and I'm not a sweaty mess. But I found that hormesis super stack. And I've done this with some of our, I'd say, our corporate athletes. Tom, we don't start this when people come to us with inflammation, stressed out, burnt out. But I'm getting some really good feedback. And, and I see with men especially, it really strips fat doing this with a combination of other protocols. Yeah, I think, you know, the same happens in, in preventative cardiology in that, you know, you if you apply multiple strategies as a package, then you get a, a much bigger effect than if you apply single strategy. So I really like that multifaceted approach. And I think sauna is central to that report that that or heat exposure, sweating are central to that if you can. Um, I know there's a resource component to this, but I think if people can build that in as part of their exercise routine, I often say to clients, I'd much prefer you spend 20 minutes less twice a week upstairs in the gym and, and be downstairs in the sauna. You'd actually be getting more overall benefit 
And so adding in your intermittent fasting, I know you're very conscious nutrition, your strength training, your aerobic training, and adding in sauna, you're getting a big package there. And, you, you know, we really can get the optimal effect and minimize the long-term health risk by doing as many of those things as you can regularly. It's that regular exposure that gives you the adaptation. I wasn't sure how we're going to wrap up today. I think you've just given us a really good analogy for that. For busy people, and that's everyone listening to this podcast, when you hear another protocol to help you with longevity and hormone profile and cognitive control and reduce the likelihood of Alzheimer's and all the benefits we went through, oh, I don't have any time, Andrew and Dr. Tom. Subtract, don't add. What Dr. Tom said then, subtract from your gym session or subtract from 20 minutes of rubbish social media watching or subtract from some of those back-to-back days of our lives meetings that adding no value to you or your team or your clients. Everyone can find a couple of 20-minute slots two or three times a week to substitute in sauna. So Dr. Tom, I've really enjoyed, because it's not just today, it's been the couple of weeks leading into this to go deep in the research, but I've really enjoyed the experimentation we've done on this over the last five years. And I look forward to continuing to adapt this to to our lives, uh, looking at the science, but also really giving protocol and utility to our clients to live a better quality of life through a whole range of different treatments. And sauna is one that overwhelming. If you are serious about improving your well-being, physical and psychological well-being, you should be introducing heat protocols. Yeah, Andrew, and and just wrapping up, you know I'm building one in my backyard. Um, That's how convinced I am looking into the future. You know, I'm the other side of 50 now, and I'm thinking, what are the things I can do into the future that significantly reduce your risks of all those diseases we talked about? But importantly, maintain cognitive function, maintain well-being, and this just seems a no-brainer to me, you know, but, so that's how convinced I am from the literature. But, but I think it's a little bit like the wisdom of crowds. I think people work this out for themselves and then you suddenly have a lot of wise people that become a crowd. And that's why you're getting asked so much about this. And for anyone who doesn't have a sauna, Wizard will put Dr. Tom's personal address in the show notes so people can <laughs> Dr. Tom, thank you for your time today. Uh, my pleasure, Andrew. <laughs> Hi again, it's Andrew, and I hope you really enjoyed that episode. We would appreciate if you helped to amplify the Performance Intelligence podcast by sharing episodes with your friends and with your colleagues by going to iTunes and leaving a rating and review. This really does help get the message out to a wider audience, and I love reading the comments as well. If you'd like to know more about booking me as a speaker at your next annual conference or company offsite, or purchasing one of the books I've written, including MatchFit, Or if you'd just like to receive my monthly e-newsletter, which is called the AM edition, that has stacks of information specific to all things human performance, go to andrewmay.com. And we'll see you on the next edition of Performance Intelligence.